Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Uh, Hello and a warm welcome to this year's What Europe? Continuity and Change in Public Opinion about European Integration. This is an event hosted by the LSE's European Institute. So I'm Chris Anderson. I'm a professor in European politics and policy here at the LSE in the European Institute. And I'm delighted to be chairing this event um, and delighted to welcome our speakers. Um, I will tell you a little bit more about them, but I can tell you already that they are some of my very favorite people uh, out there working on these on these topics that we're going to discuss today. And these are all good friends that I've known for a long, long time. So I can't wait for you all to meet them as well. So, but before I introduce them, I have a couple of housekeeping announcements. If you're one of those people who uses Twitter, uh, feel free to go ahead and tweet away about the event. The hashtag uh, for the event is hashtag LSEEI30 because we're celebrating the European Institute's 30th anniversary this year. So it's LSEEI30. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available on a podcast as a podcast subject to us having no technical difficulties. Um, The event will consist of some presentations from our speakers to begin with, then we'll have a bit of a discussion with myself, and then we'll open it up for Q&A for the audience. And when it comes to the Q&A portion of the event, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. If you've been to these events before, you'll be a veteran, you'll know exactly what to do. Questions will be submitted to me, and I will pose as many of those as I can uh, in in terms of the time uh, that we have. Okay, so let me now introduce our speakers, not in, in, in order of importance, but in order of speaking, because they're all wonderful, wonderful scholars. Uh, I'm really, really happy that Professor Lisbeth Hoge is here. Uh, she's the WR Cannon, was it Keenan, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she's also a research professor at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the EUI in Florence. So Chapel Hill and Florence are two lovely places in this world. Um, and I'm really glad that she's here with us virtually in London. She's a former chair of the European Politics and Society section of the American Political Science Association and also of the European Union Studies Association among many, many other things that she's done. Equally as busy and distinguished has been um, Professor Sarah Hobolt, who is our own LSE Sutherland Chair in European Institutions and a professor in the Department of Government. Uh, She's the chair of the European Election Studies which is an EU-wide project studying voters, parties, candidates, and the media in European parliamentary elections. She's also the principal investigator of the ERC-funded EU Demos, Constrained Democracy, Citizens' Responses to Limited Political Choice in the European Union. And then last but not least, we have with us Professor Lauren McLaren. She's not coming from Florence or Chapel Hill, but she's coming to us from the University of Leicester. Uh, just so just a little north of here. She has published on the topics of public opinion about immigration and European integration in various top journals of political science, including the British Journal of Political Science, the European Journal of Political Research, and Journal of Politics, and many others. She's also written books on these topics for Oxford University Press and Palgrave Macmillan. Her current research include economic and what we call identity perceptions of the EU in the lead up to the Brexit referendum and people's perceptions of minorities during the COVID pandemic. Um, So 
here they are. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce them, to welcome them to the LSE, even though sadly it's only virtually today. Um, and I'm going to turn it over now to Professor Lisbeth Horge to begin her presentation. Go for it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. And um, I hope you can hear me and let me just share my screen. Always an interesting um, transition. <laughs> Here you go. Yeah. It works. <laughs> it, it's there. Uh, well, first of all, I'm really, I'm really happy to be here, and on, I feel honored that that I'm part of this panel, um, and particularly this special occasion, the 30 years anniversary. Um, I can't believe it's 30 years, um, and so much has changed. So, also glad to be on the panel with Sarah and Lauren. Um, Chris asked, asked us, you guys don't know this, but what, to, to think about what we've learned about the broad changes across Europe. And he mentioned also populist parties. So I'm going to pick him, him up on that. And um, to start by saying that the single most important thing to me that we've learned is um, that public opinion on Europe integration is, is for real. It's not a proxy for something else. Um, European integration is having tangible, durable, sharply divergent effects on the life chances of identifiable social groups. Not equally profound effects across our societies or across all groups, but specific social groups. And because of that, European integration has melded into domestic politics. I actually don't like the term domestic politics. I want to say normal politics, but I don't know what normal is. Has melded into politics as usual. And because of that, attitudes on domestic issues tell you something about attitudes on Europe and vice versa. And the second thing it's related is that European integration, I think is best understood as part of a profound transformation in our European societies. Something uh, pretty big, perhaps of the caliber of the shift from an agricultural to an industrial society. It's change on multiple fronts, economic, cultural, social, political. So if you want to understand, for example, the rise of Eurosceptic populist parties or the pro-European turn of green public opinion, it's helpful to take in that bigger picture. Let me just go to, um, I, something switched here. So what I'm, Proposing is a qualitative conceptual shift here in how we conceive public opinion. And to the left, you have um, you know, a, a representation of what I would call the classical approach. It's to take individuals as independent observations and assess the relative importance of, of them having particular social characteristics, being male or female, being a worker or a professional, being um, living um, in an urban area or rural area, being a partisan, strong partisan or not, in explaining something like a vote or an attitude, say, towards European integration. You can give this causal depth, as is done here, through Campbell's funnel of causality. Um, those of you studying public opinion will be familiar with that. The key is that this is individual focus that shifts in public opinion are expected to be gradual, expressed um, in, in shifting relative weights of the coefficients that you put on the variables that, for example, here on the screen in Campbell model. The, the approach that I'm suggesting by saying we're in a time of deep transformation is a cleavage approach. 
And, and that is entirely different. That is not individual focused as much, it's social group focused. And second, it's non-linear, punctuated. This is assuming that developments like shifts in public opinion are gonna be non-linear. And here is a classical textbook presentation of Rockan, Stan Rockan's four cleavages that shape Western politics. Again, probably many of you are familiar with that. And, and so what I'm arguing is there is a fifth cleavage lurking in the background. It's in the making. We, um, I mean by that Gary Marx and myself, call it the transnational cleavage. And note that I didn't put it on the screen here yet. Um, we don't have effective labels yet to label the two sides. Um, you want a label is good when it's snappy and when it resonates with the people on that side. This is a cleavage in the making. And we're still kind of figuring out what exactly the two sides are about. But let me just give you very briefly kind of a gist of, of what um, um, we're thinking about. It's a deep transformation that began several decades ago because these transformations usually take time to unfold. It can be boiled down to the invention of the computer, I claim, or more precisely, nonlinear advances in, in semiconductor technology, which reduced information to a very small size, bytes, talk about computer bytes, that made information amenable to large economies of scale in storing it, manipulating it, transmitting it. And that information revolution triggered a shift in the economy away from industrialism to a, a knowledge economy. So you might be asking yourself now, by now, what's the link to European integration? Well, I think the link is twofold. One, the information revolution made globalization feasible and profitable because you could transfer information much more rapidly and much greater capacities than ever before. And European economic integration fits right into that. It is a major vehicle for globalization. I'm, I'm not original saying this. There's a lot of people arguing this, but I'm kind of trying to put it in a kind of a, a bigger, in a bigger picture. And the second way in which European integration is, is linked to this is that what the information revolution has done is turned upside down the life chances of particular social groups. And we can be quite specific about this. This is what the slide is about. And I don't have the time to, to really go through every single bit of it, but essentially it undergirds the rise of first the Green Party, which have become the go-to mouthpiece of social groups that broadly have benefited from that shift to an information economy. It's people like us, it's teachers, it's scientists, it's social professionals, um, it's universities as institutions as well. And then as a reaction to that backlash, but also as, as a reaction to the second stage of the information revolution is the rise of tan parties, trans traditional authoritarian nationalist parties, or you could call them populist right parties, to go to mouthpiece for social groups that mostly have seen their prospects decline. And again, you can be specific about who that actually is. And so we call it a transnational cleavage, which is not there fully yet, it's maturing, it's emerging, because the two sides essentially um, are, are, are at, at in conflict about the extent to which you should embrace or reject this globalizing transnational world. And the European Union 
is squarely in there. It was not so obvious, perhaps, if you go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, when the green parties were emerging, the effect was more indirect, even though someone like Ron Engelhardt had interesting things to say about this. But the European integration project was central in the second phase, the 80s, 1990s, when, when really the information revolution went global through trade, immigration, and the strengthening of international institutions. Um, now, that has sharp effects, these epochal shifts, sharp effects on particular social groups, but not everyone, this is what I said. And the methodological takeaway from that is that if you want to see who is actually affected, whether positively or negatively, you need to match the level of analysis to the scale of the shared social experience. You have to get into people's lives and, and, and get close to what they experience and how they express it to themselves, but also to the people around them. So we need to approach the individual not as an independent observation, but as someone who is socially embedded, and we have to always kind of constantly think about that social embeddedness to identify what are the most meaningful social environments for this person to understand how that bears on, on her political views, on her vote. And so here is an illustration and I'm seeing I'm running out of time. So I'm gonna just switch that. Um, I'm just gonna just uh, let that be, but essentially what it's trying to say is using survey data that it's often not enough to work with the categories that we have that are too big, like higher educated tend to be um, vote more if for green parties, but you, you need to go lower in that. You need to go, you disaggregate that. You have to go micro. You have to go to smaller groups to understand what really is going on. But I wanna make one final point here. Surveys can take you some, some way there, except that it's often very difficult to get and expensive to get this very detailed information that gets you close to the social experience of the people. Um, but more importantly, I think service can only really offer to the respondent the categories that we know, the categories that we have yet, but that we've discovered. And it can't give you the categories that have yet to discover, to label, to define. Um, so there's a wall there of, of not knowing the contours of the conflict, not knowing the words, the phrases that resonate with the people in the terrain. Um, Sarah is lucky as a student of Brexit that Brexit became so intense that the conflict that actually produced labels for the two sides, remainers and leavers, and I'm sure you'll pick up whether or not these stick and will carry forward in the future and what that means. Um, but very often, and in the case of this cleavage, which is still incipient, we, we're not so sure what the exact categories are what the exact labels are that get people's backs up and that therefore also uh, help us understand how, how deep and how wide a potential cleavage is. So that's why I have on the right side, you might wonder what are these doing there? Well, my mind is really in American politics these days. I'm currently writing a paper on American politics, North Carolina politics of all. And what I take away from these three examples um, there are different ways to go about and trying to understand what the heck is happening in our societies, the transformation of, of our societies and the politics, the polarization, particularly in America, but I would argue also in. And what these are are really 
ethnographic attempts to go deep into the society themselves and talk to the people who are upset for some reason or another to try to get to these labels um, that, that help us put a name on, on the changing politics. It's, it's both a very old approach, the ethnographic approach, and I think a very new and refreshing approach that's complementary to the normal kind of trade of things, survey research that we like to do for scholars like us, public opinion. Let me finish with this because I know it's gonna come up, but just not let you read it. And just a reminder that we've lived in a charmed era. Um, now that the peace dividend is gone is something I picked up from Ian Bremer, um, who's a, a, a scholar of, of um, Eurasia, essentially. Um, we're entering a very different world and, and we need to ask ourselves what that, also, what that means for Europe, European attitudes, and what it means for us as academic researchers and what it possibly could mean for survey research. So let me just um, end here and also end the slide slide, show, talk share. That's great. Thank you so much, Lisbeth. That was already super stimulating. Um, and I can't wait to hand it over to Professor Saho Walt, who is going to pick up the baton and tell us her thoughts. Thank you, Annette. And it's uh, it's really great to hear Lisbeth's sort of big thought on the sort of big structural determinants of how EU attitudes are shaped by this transnational cleavage, uh, and also how that makes us understand why some people are more pro-European than others not. Uh, what I'll do is sort of look slightly differently, namely trying to look at, well, why do these sort of mean levels, averages, sometimes shift uh, over time uh, in response to external events? And so I think that's a complementary to this sort of more structural approach to understanding that. So I hope uh, you can see my, my slides there. And um, I'll think of, I'll, I'll touch upon two external events. One is Brexit. You could call it an internal event originally, but then it became external. Um, and the other is the event that we are living through right now uh, on our continent with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and trying to speculate what might that mean for public opinion um, uh, towards the EU if we think of sort of basing that on, on the academic knowledge and the theories we apply to understand public attitudes towards the EU. Um, so if we think of Brexit, it wasn't immediately obvious, I think, if we go back to June 2016, what was going to happen. Things always seem obvious in hindsight, but at the time there was quite a lot of nervousness uh, around capitals in Europe and in Brussels that this was, could this be a kind of domino effect contagion? We know there were many of the parties that Lisbeth have described on the uh, on, on the tan end that were also quite keen to have referendums uh, on EU membership in their country and, and potentially saw an opportunity to exploit this, um, uh, this exit or, or, um, or this vote on exiting by the British voters. Um, so one of the things that I've been looking at in, in my research is what has been the effect, but also why has the effect of Brexit been the way it's been in the remaining member states? And if we just look at kind of observational data, we can see that there has been an uptick in, in public support for the EU and the EU 27 since Brexit. Of course, that can be for many reasons. One of it is the, uh, the fact that, you know, the financial crisis also became a less significant issue than it was previously. But certainly there was an uptick and some people certainly in Brussels saw that as the kind of 
the effect of, of their handling of the Brexit negotiations. And there is a, a theoretical underpinning for that where we can use to sort of think about that, namely that Brexit became a kind of benchmark for membership support. In other words, for for citizens in the EU 27, they could look at the EU, uh, the UK, and they could see, well, does that look like an attractive option to us? And maybe certainly if you look at it for the past uh, five years or six, as it's coming up to now, that has not been the case, partly as a result of the very, um, uh, what might we call them tumultuous or rather chaotic exit negotiations um, between the EU and the UK. And that can also be embedded in a sort of larger um, question of how citizens form opinion on EU membership. So there are these big underlying structural reasons that Lisbeth pointed to so eloquently. Uh, and part of that is also, I would, some of that has to do with a kind of deeper identity uh, with a kind of more global multicultural vision, but also perhaps a kind of cost benefit analysis in terms of how does it benefit me to be inside the EU or outside? Are we better and worse off? Well, often that's obviously a counterfactual. We don't know about whether we're better or worse off. We might take various cues. Uh, Chris Anderson has written about how we might take cues from our own institution or national elites. We might rely on sort of more deep-seated identities as both Lisbeth and, and Lauren has written on. Uh, but we also, what Brexit offered was also a kind of quite concrete example of what it looked like outside the EU, at least in the short term. What does it look like if we decide to leave? And, and Catherine de Vries has written a whole book, an excellent book on this benchmarking theory. And if we ask people, as we did in the European election study, how does it look outside? Uh, you know, has the, is, has the, is the UK worse off or better off outside uh, the EU? Uh, there was a, 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 an overwhelming consensus um, across uh, EU member states, and this was done when the UK was still a member, so that's why the UK is in there, and you can see even in the UK there so seems to be a consensus that the UK is worse off uh, outside the EU, and that's consistent with national polling, uh, although of course uh, there's a big group, um, as Lisbeth said, of leavers who think that the UK is better off. Only the Greek are a bit sort of uh, <laughs> a split on the issue, and that of course has to do with their experience, I think, during the Eurozone crisis. Now, how do these perceptions of the UK, how well they're faring, then translate into uh, people's attitudes towards their own country's membership of the EU? So what I would argue is that, you know, it can work as this kind of benchmarks, uh, which means that if you think the Britain is doing rather badly, then that increases support for um, for EU domestically. So that's part of the reasons we've seen this shift upwards. Uh, whereas if Brexit were to be viewed as a success, uh, then that might go in the other way. So it means that it's not really fixed necessarily. Uh, if uh, you know we have a minister here in the UK, I think for Brexit possibilities, or opportunities or something like that. So let's say he comes up with the fact showing this is a, quite a success to be outside um, the EU. You could imagine this not being fixed. We did uh, test this experimentally. We gave randomized treatments, kind of little vignettes where we gave people some positive information about Brexit consequences for Britain. Interestingly, that also shifted people's views towards a more optimistic view about their own country's prospects towards the EU. Again, providing some supportive evidence of this idea that Brexit has does can play a role in how people view their own memberships. Uh, support and whether they view it positively or negatively. 
and I won't spend too much time on this graph, but that's basically just showing that uh, point, which is that if people think that the UK is better off, they are much less supportive, whereas if they think UK would be worse off, they are much more supportive of their own country's membership of the EU. And that translates both in terms of EU support on the left and referendum vote on the right. Now, I have a minute left uh, or so, and I will go to something uh, uh, much worse uh, uh, than Brexit and really quite tragic that we're all living through right now and, of course, don't know uh, how it will end. But I wanted to speculate a bit on what might be the effect on how people view the EU inside the European Union. And I think in that sense, our theories of EU attitudes and public opinion on European integration does give us some guidance of what might happen in this case. Now, one big thing to say is, of course, when you look at the EU and foreign policy, it, it is one policy area where traditionally the EU is actually not particularly united. And we know that not EU, all EU memberships are, in, uh, all EU members are in NATO. We know that when it came to other big conflicts like the Iraq war, in fact, the EU was quite divided. And what we've seen, um, in this case is a quite unprecedented united response uh, in part due to the sort of atrocities of what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. Now, one thing that therefore does is it highlights the security threat for countries not in the EU and NATO. We see that basically, you know, EU and NATO are supportive of Ukraine, but they also say it is not our uh, country to defend. We will not get involved uh, directly militarily. And so for kind of benchmarking theory, that would suggest if you are in the EU, you think, well, actually, there are some very tangible benefits, also security benefits associated with that. And these are also security benefits that I think countries that are not in NATO, like Finland, Sweden, and, and Ireland, so feel they reap the benefits of. And you can see polling in those countries suggest that support has gone up. There's also a different perspective, a sort of social identity perspective that would suggest that this would make people identify more closely with Europe. Because often what we have in Europe is that we are part of a Western world and it can be hard sometimes to, to sort of think of, we can think of the differences between us, but when you have a common enemy, in this case, the sort of Putin's Russia, uh, what we know from social identity theory creates a kind of us versus them, which means we, it perhaps strengthens our feelings of being European and defending something specifically European against a common enemy. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing to have a common enemy, but it might have a kind of spillover effect in terms of how people stick together in the continent. And you've certainly seen that in terms of the elite response to the crisis. So as I already mentioned, what the Russian invasion did was it has forced uh, the EU to make a quite united response in terms of sanctions and so on in ways that uh, they have often struggled to do in foreign policy. And what we've also seen is that countries that have been in, in some conflict with the EU institution recently, namely Poland and Hungary, have come more back into the fold. And in fact, we've seen this just an EU mission here by the, by the prime ministers of Slovenia, Poland and the Czech Republic going to Kiev to meet uh, the Ukrainian president again as an EU mission. And I think just a few months ago, Poland was rather in collision course with the European Commission, and now uh, the focus has shifted. Uh, so these are sort of three reasons why I think when it comes to um, when it comes to EU support, this tragedy has brought European citizens closer together and probably also increased. I think we'll see an increase in support for European integration and possibly also European identification. Thank you.
Great, thank you. Wow, everyone is so organized and everyone is so on time. It is quite something, really, really good, uh, keeping us on track. Uh, so now we're gonna turn to Professor Lauren McLean to give us her views. Thank you, Chris, and thank you to Sarah and Lisbeth for those very uh, thought-provoking presentations. Um, I don't have PowerPoint slides. I didn't realize until this morning that some people were going to do PowerPoint slides um, and I didn't have time to do any. So I'm just going to talk. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, apart from teaching purposes, it's actually been quite a long time since I last did my own research specifically on the topic of public opinion about European integration. But I have been researching a topic that is often strongly connected to public opinion about European integration, and that's public opinion regarding immigration. And I'm going to talk now about public opinion regarding immigration as it relates to public attitudes towards European integration. And ultimately, the main point that I want to talk about is generational differences in public opinion regarding immigration as well as generational differences and other values that all of which I think needs to be taken into account when discussing the likelihood of change in public opinion about European integration. So of course, one of the key principles of the European Union is the free movement of people. And at first glance, when you look at some public opinion data, the free movement of people within the EU may not look all that controversial within the current EU member states. For instance, when you ask EU citizens whether you're for or against the free movement of other EU citizens to live, work, study, and do business anywhere in the EU, more than 85% across the EU say, yes, I'm in favor of this. And yet even 75% of the British public also said that they were in favor of this idea of free, free movement. And this is despite the fact that strong negative attitudes to immigration were such a powerful factor in the EU's decision to leave, or sorry, the UK's decision to leave the EU. Similarly, um, an overwhelming majority of 85% of Hungarians said they supported this principle of free movement of people for the other purpose of living, working, studying, and doing business. And yet, uh, when they were asked specifically in an experiment that Rob Ford did a few years in the European Social Survey about whether they would allow unskilled workers from Romania, 54% said no, they would allow no unskilled workers from Romania. And I could talk about some of the other countries uh, in that European social survey experiment that might surprise you. For instance, Span Spanish attitudes towards Romanian workers, Finnish attitudes towards Estonian workers and, and so on. So it seems that the reality of free movement is quite a different matter than the general principle of free movement. Now, we've known for a long time that negative attitudes to immigration are connected to negative attitudes to the European Union. And this may be because of this principle of uh, free movement. It may be a more general categorization of us and them with both the EU and EU migrants fitting into the general them category. But I would say immigration attitudes may be changing in ways that have important implications for public opinion about European integration. So for instance, along with some of my uh, co-authors, uh, Anya Neuendorf and Ian Patterson uh, in particular, I've uh, researched generational differences in attitudes to immigration in the UK. 
And we find significant persistent differences with a small but steady significant movement towards positive attitudes to immigration among younger generations, starting with generations born after around 1960. And this is even when we take into account aging um, or life cycle effects, you know, whereby we become more intolerant uh, as we get older, and also taking into account uh, contemporaneous uh, um, changes like increases in immigration or contemporaneous economic problems. And we argue that this shift towards greater tolerance of immigration is likely to be a result of younger generations being socialized in a context in which immigrant origin diversity is the norm. But it's, it's not just us, it's not just our research. Um, research on other attitudes and predispositions is showing similar trends. For instance, I'm sure you've all read the book by Pippa Norris and Inglehart on Trump and Brexit um, that shows that younger generations are also less authoritarian than older generations. And we know that authoritarianism is also strongly related to attitudes to the European Union. In my view, all of this suggests the likelihood of generational differences in some of the key factors that move levels of support for the EU and European integration. Now, comparative research specifically on generational differences in public support for the EU, for instance, by uh, Down and Wilson, also shows that those who came of age after around the mid 1960s are more supportive of the EU. And importantly, I think, at least according to these scholars, um, these younger generations are showing greater affective support for the European Union. And here, this refers to kind of a deep-seated support for the EU, which they argue is likely to be quite stable over time. Um, and the research on this finding claims that this deep-seated support has developed because younger generations came of age at a time when European integration levels were already quite high. And so each new generation of Europeans, uh, at least according to, to that research, um, has come of age in a Europe that is more visible, more substantial and more relevant uh, from the perspective of forming affective attachments to this political community. But I would also argue that the shift in support for European integration may be connected to the broader trends um, towards tolerance and liberalism or uh, support for libertarianism. And in short, wh whatever the reason, um, generational differences are likely to be a key part of the story of changing attitudes towards the European Union and European integration potentially due to the socialization aspects that people like Down and Wilson uh, talk about um, on research, specifically about public opinion regarding the EU, but also because of changes in attitudes and values that have underpinned hostility to the EU, such as uh, anti-immigration sentiment and authoritarianism. Great, let me unmute myself really quickly to thank you for these really interesting ideas and really interesting thoughts. Um, and it's really great to listen to all of you because you're touching on so many interesting facets of this sort of broader topic of public opinion about Europe. And I, there's the kind of macro level, if you will, sort of these broad 
structural changes in technology and information, kind of these, these sort of, I was going to use the Engelhardian term of silent revolutions that are happening. But then there's also at the macro level events, my dear, right? Big things that happen, exogenous things that happen to us in terms of political events or natural disasters and what have you. But then there's also kind of the micro level that, that Lauren also talks about, about how kind of how do we think about the psychology of Europe, so to speak, right? How at the individual level of citizens do they navigate the complexity of the EU? So I was going to throw it um, to you in, in, in this broader sense, because it feels to me uh, that um, there's two things happening here. So on the one hand, there's a... Um, uh, there are these, these changes that are happening in the world that impinge upon how people make sense of this object that is Europe. And they also change what that Europe looks like, right? When you have, a, when, when, when war makes states, when external things like pandemics bring European Union member states together, get leaders to cooperate and so on, um, then that has to inevitably change the nature of the political object that people are thinking about when they are asked about the European Union, right? On the other hand, I'm always struck by um, the demands that we put on citizens to make sense of this changing object, of this complex object. It's hard enough, I always feel, <laughs> for normal people who have other things on their minds, like their jobs and their kids and everything else, to pay attention to normal politics, as Lisbeth calls it. Um, and so how do they then make sense of this, this complex animal or elephant we call the European Union that continues to change uh, with every passing crisis, be it migration, be it uh, a pandemic, be it a war now. Um, so it feels like there's a bit of a tension here that I haven't resolved in my own head. And I wonder if you had thoughts about those. Um, Lisbeth, what do you think? Yes, well, um, I, I really do think the three, um, three presentations kind of um, just build accidentally on each other because we didn't necessarily coordinate very well, so it's nice. And Chris, you, you put it nicely, how do people make um, sense of this? I think what neither of us really explicitly talked about was the mediators, right? And so, I mean, Sarah's work has, has as Ms. Harris and, and, and Catherine's work has talked very much about, you know, the, the mediating role of, of entrepreneurs um, as so the strategic element that, that is there. And I think, you know, when I mentioned political parties, the, these are the old style mediators who help to people, for those who care about party politics, help people to make sense of this. So from my perspective, a cleavage perspective, um, a, you don't expect that everyone is, is equally affected in the same way by the big structural changes, not even by big exogenous events. Um, even on, the Ukra on Ukraine, which we all are just very much involved in, I'm, I'm sure this, that too is the attention is unequally are distributed uh, across ordinary citizens who've got to bring their kids to school, go to the doctor and all these types of things, right? Um, so mediators are necessary. Those who interpret opinion leaders or parties are, are one source that I would focus on. Um, the um, 
the social media, and there's a lot of work that shows that social media is influential. We're never quite sure what the causality there is. Why do you pick if you're in the, um, you know, why do you read the Daily Mail instead of the Daily Telegraph or the Times or the Guardian, right? I mean, there's a pre-selection there, and then you get fed the news that tends to be reinforcing for your particular views. So I, I'm always very cautious about calling social media a causal factor, but it certainly is one that can amplify predispositions. Um, so I think we do need to continue working on it. There's some great work out there that, that makes those connections. Your basic point is right. And so my kind of one of my, my point was that's why one way of getting there is to go down deep down and dig, dig into the places where people live and, and, and try to figure out in this more chaotic world because we don't have trade unions, we don't have churches, we don't have these intermediary organizations that are all encompassing or partially encompassing of, of our lives anymore. It's a much more chaotic, fragmented world out there. Where are the sources of, of opinion formation? What are, and under what conditions do people pick, you know, just pick this one rather than that one? I think that is a major, major question. Sarah and uh, Lauren, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, I agree with, with all of that. And in fact, of course, uh, Lisbeth herself is uh, together with, with Gary March is one of the, I think she put it sort of beautifully in the, in the article on post-functionalism. I think, you know, what, how you portray the EU is sort of very, you know, the olden days where it was just really, there was no direct experience because it was not generally politicized. And if we have this panel really looking at how these things have evolved, we had this sort of permissive consensus, partly because people didn't know they didn't care. But now, and this does vary over time across countries, but I think when, when Lisbeth and, and Gary put it, this constraining dissensus, that is the world we're in. It is politicized now in, in politics by these political entrepreneurs, but also in some instances by people's experiences with the EU, like for example, during the Eurozone crisis. And there you see them when you analyze those elections, it becomes the issue because this is something that unusually for the EU affects people's everyday lives. So in that sense, it's not constant, but we certainly have seen that sort of trend that the EU is very different from this sort of remote issue that people didn't pay any attention to. It's often quite central in different ways. And even though people, of course, don't understand every single treaty change or institutional legislative system, I mean, I hardly do myself, and I, I'm supposed to be like a Sutherland chair in European institutions, but that doesn't mean you can't have a sort of broader sense of um, of what that object is, if, and also, and it's actually quite structurally aligned in the way Lisbeth has explained with other sort of attitudes towards multiculturalism, towards globalization, towards a whole value set that is not directly about the EU, but that's, we see that quite consistently in surveys. But curiously, um, so would you say then, I mean, talking about migration, which is something, uh, immigration that Lauren was talking about, in a way the world is given would this be an overstatement, I guess is the question. The world has given the European Union kind of the perverse gifts of a migration crisis, a pandemic, and now a war, all of which pose problems, political problems, public policy problems that are best solved on the whole, in the round, as a set of member states together. These are kind of 
you know, if, if, if we do, if, if you do the sort of public opinion survey work, you see that, you know, the areas in which citizens are most supportive of further integration have to do with things like external relations, right, have to do with climate change, have to do with migration problems, and so on. So in a way, it feels like this is a giant jolt over these last five to seven years that the EU has received kind of a giant shot in the arm. Um, and I, I would find it interesting to think about and speculate about kind of what that means if we have this panel 30 years from now, e, the EI at 60 years, will we look back on, on this moment, uh, 2015 to 2022 and say, wow, that was a moment when the EU really changed um, and therefore also in people's minds changed as a as a as a political object but i'm I, i'm not on the panel i'm only asking a question uh, lauren did you have any thoughts about this um yeah on on your final points um i believe if you look at support for uh common migration policies however uh it's not quite as high as support for uh common foreign policy and support for uh, solving um, the climate crisis and that kind of thing. Um, and um, as uh, we were talking before, before we actually started the, the session, um, you know, I, I guess I am a little bit concerned um, about how the migrate, current migration crisis uh, is going to develop um, over the next few months and years um, as um, you know, the receiving countries get used to having um, such large numbers of newcomers and receiving countries that have been uh, traditionally very hostile towards immigration. Um, I mean, I know that there, there are cultural connections, so that may uh, make it uh, less problematical than in previous instances of large-scale migration that, that we've seen. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether we will necessarily see this as, as the, the confluence of, of events that helps to produce um, greater support for European integration. And that's mostly because of the migration crisis itself that has, has been produced. Um, but going back to um, your, your previous question um, about, you know, what how people understand the, the European Union. Um, so I was uh, rereading a, a recent paper by Clark and Rorschneider that um, is kind of a, an uh, opening article to a special issue of European Union politics that uh, discusses national identity and European identity and you know, builds a, a bit again on Lisbeth's work, um, some of her other really important work about um, ex exclusiveness of national identity. And one of the things that they were trying to do was kind of chart whether um, people's levels of um, identification with the European Union, even if it's you know, co you know, with European Union and with, with the nation state have changed over time. And what they are saying is uh, really it hasn't and that people are still very strongly attached to their national identities. And this is you know, one of the underpinning factors um, that I think people reach to when thinking about the European Union. And absolutely, um, you know, some of the points Lisbeth and Sarah were making, um, Rohr Schneider and Clark also made about 
the, the potential role of some political actors to activate that national identity. And they talked, uh, for instance, about populist parties and the activation of national identity um, to oppose things like European integration. And I think that, it, it, again, we, we will see uh, what political entrepreneurs come up with um, you know, over, over the next few months um, that might activate national identity, uh, anti-migration, hostility, and, and that kind of thing. But I still think generational change may be happening. <laughs> I can come back to that if you want me to. I'll stop there. Okay. Lisbeth, you had your hand up. Yeah, um, I just want to give a little bit of pushback, Chris, on what you were saying about, you know, the, the crises. And, you know, there is, of course, um, it's often said that, you know, the European Union excels or grows through crises. But, you know, two of the crises brought the European Union at the, to the brink of, of um, collapse. The financial crisis and the migration crisis were deep, 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 deeply problematic. And that was because they were, they were asymmetric. Uh, in the sense that they asymmetrically affected different countries uh, and and they were construed as such, right? Which is two related things, but they're not exactly the same things. And it's true that COVID and Ukraine uh, have been much more symmetric, both in reality and in construction. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm struck how the invasion of Ukraine has been constructed quite effectively as a battle between democracy and authoritarianism and connected to the battle that I think is going on globally, including China. And, you know, what is uh, very clear is that the, the Trump experience, also something we mentioned <laughs> before, you know, has put Europeans on, on, on alert that the United States is not necessarily trustworthy. Um, fine now, but two years from now, I'm not so sure. And that they better get their act together. I wonder, and we can't play the counterfactual, if Trump had not been elected in 2016, whether the Europeans would have been as um, amazingly uh, forceful in their reaction against U the U Ukraine invasion, um, if then, than what they've done now. I think the, the Trump experience and, and the realization that they had to step up for themselves because next time the US may not be there, I think was critical. And the second point very quickly is, we are mostly talking about a assertive reaction by elites. And I think greatly facilitated by the fact that Britain is not in the room. That's certainly the case with COVID. I'm less sure about Ukraine. I think Britain would have been probably a strong proponent of, of, a, of a firm stance, but, you know. Um, and with Lauren, I'm, I'm, I need to wait and see to what extent the tremendous support that you now see in public opinion is gonna be lasting once the, the costs become more transparent of what such a commitment means. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. 
Thanks, Lisbeth. So um, I have some more questions, but I, I wanted to uh, hear what the audience has to say, if that's okay with you, if, if it's okay to turn to some of the questions from the, the, the people listening. Um, and uh, there are several questions on, on a variety of, of topics here. Um, so let me so start with the first one here by Kevin Featherstone, who uh, uh, this is a, asking a question of, of Lisbeth. He said, to pick up where you left off, is Putin emasculating the populist right in Europe? I'm thinking of the political somersaults of leaders like Salvini and the shifts of Orban, as well as the electoral problems of Zemmour and Le Pen. So is the tide behind the tan cleavage abating? That's a very interesting question, I think. And any of you who want to weigh in on that one, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. So did, the, did Putin kill the populist right? Oh, that's probably too strong. <laughs> well, I think the funding right now is going underground, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't think he's got much money to spend anyway. Um, but I mean, clearly, the, the short term, in the short run, um, this is a, a major blow for the populist rights or the time rights. Um, they have proven wrong, and so far, that's different from certain factions in in the uh, hard right Republican Party. So far, this populist right has been very careful not to be drawn in saying we are openly authoritarian. Of course, with the exception of. Orban and a few others, but essentially the populist right has, has, has pretended at least, that perhaps is that real or is it pretense, I don't know, has tried to send signals that they are willing to play within the rules of the democratic game. Um, Putin has clearly um, totally punctured that balloon. If you're pro-Putin, how can you be pro-democracy or pro-democratic rules? And that's a real issue for the populist right. But there again, that's the short term. I would even venture to say the medium term. In the long run, um, as, and, and there I pick up what I said just a minute ago, as the costs of not only the immigration, I think that is, Lauren is right there, but I'm thinking much more, uh, I think much bigger in terms of the costs of upping the defense, the costs of um, just closing off cheaper energy from Russia and of course that will mean for people economically but um, as, as soon as that starts to sink in uh, there will be space I would guess for populist entrepreneurs and those on the populist radical right are best place to take advantage of this. Um, so I did the authoritarian, openly authoritarian route, I think for now is foreclosed because that is, has proven to be highly unpopular in Europe. But the other route of that, uh, we can't just shoot ourselves in the foot by just now totally investing in defense or weaning ourselves off from energy um, that's, um, and, and that's gonna destroy our living standard. I think that route could be a powerful one for the populist right to take up. They're defending the ordinary people after all, aren't they? Do you agree with that, Sarah and Lauren? I, I just, yeah, I fully agree. I just wanted to say one of these wedge issues or issues that I think we might see. So, so what Brexit has done, and now I think the war in, in, in Ukraine has done is sort of closing off the sort of very, also some of the very over, you know, exit Euroscepticism 
what we see in our analysis is that has softened. It's just, it's not even from the sort of Le Pen's of this world. It's not so much, oh, let's have a referendum and get out of the EU. There's less appetite for it since Brexit, but also I imagine now in that uncertain geopolitical world, people don't want to go it alone. But that I, I fully agree with everything uh, Lisbeth said, that that doesn't mean that there's not other avenues. And one interesting avenue that, 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 that you mentioned in passing, Lisbeth, is that one on sort of the net zero, where there's a big, broad elite consensus. And that's now going to be more expensive in the short term because of uh, and, and it's interesting to see here in, in the UK with the Reform UK, which is the successor of UK Brexit Party, so on, that that's now what Farage uh, wants is a referendum on, on the net zero pledge. So it's just there are other opportunities for these uh, entrepreneurs to go against, so align themselves along that transnational cleavage that Lisbeth uh, and against the sort of the green, the uh, global, multicultural, the pro-European agenda and take the opposite end. Uh, and, and I think that's the one example of a wedge issue that could be exploited and potentially successful. And Lauren, you seem to have kind of implied already that it's early going in this Ukraine migration process, right? The numbers in Poland are staggering, right? And so to the extent that this will continue to, uh, that the numbers will continue to grow, uh, European states will have to contend with this, this huge wave of migration. And I guess um, one implication would be to, to say, hey, let's wait and see what things look like a year from now. There might be real opportunity for people to make political hay of of this this migration is that how you see it as well definitely um yes yeah, so I, I definitely think that 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 is likely um and yeah so i mean one of one of the other things we were talking about before we started was um you know some of the other research that i've done um this one with chris classen also up at glasgow um about you know back backlashes against uh, influxes of migration and the fact that um, these are usually more powerful in countries that have less experience with immigration. Um, so, you know, Central and East European countries um, and, than they are in countries that have more experience with immigrant origin diversity. Um, so I, I, unfortunately, I think that there is likely to be a negative reaction, um, wh whether it needs to be prompted by entrepreneurs or whether it would come anyway, um, you know, as um, you know, it, a few incidences that might involve migrants, um, you know, make the news or hit social media, as, as Lisbeth was talking about, and are, are twisted uh, in, in a way um, that increases uh, hostility towards immigration. I, I think you, you are likely to see this kind of backlash. One of the things we also talked about though was um, that the backlash reverses, um, but it, it can take about uh, 10 to 20 years for it to reverse. So, um, you know, the one issue is that, you know, current political leaders don't often don't feel like they have 10 to 20 years to wait for public opinion to, to go back to uh, kind of normal uh, levels, if, if we can uh, call it that. A kind of uh, connect the question here is posed by Anthony Vallion, who uh, one of our alumni, uh, uh, who is ex-trans to the LSE right now. Um, he, he was asking, how closely is European identity allied with the, the West? For now, there's a NATO resurgence, he says, but Macron has 
stated a desire for a European strategic autonomy. So if Macron is reelected and if the Republicans regain Congress later this year in the US, will the risk of Trump uh, the second presidency create a cleavage again between Europe and the US? Um, and will the UK perhaps be drawn back into Europe? So I think right now, as Lisa was saying earlier, you know, things are sort of aligned, right? NATO, EU, the West, Biden, all this stuff kind of, right? Working hand in hand, at least for the last few weeks. Um, but imagine a different kind of US. And this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit these last couple of weeks is what would the world look like? What would this conflict have looked like with a Trump in the White House uh, without a, a strong leadership from, from, from an American president without a strong American willingness to at least express an interest in a presence in Europe. Um, uh, yeah, can we imagine that world and what will that look like and what will that mean for how Europeans think about themselves as Europe? I mean, I think in a way, Lisbeth already hinted at that before when she said, I mean, we already had four years of Trump, and I think that provided an early impetus and perhaps has changed this response in this crisis. It's not just a hypothetical. I think there was a clear, it's interesting you're saying the West or Europe. I mean, by that, you mean the US being the West and Europe not. I mean, I, I guess that's the sort of formulation is that the US is the West. But yeah. but but so, and I think we saw that, that there was not necessarily an alignment there. And I think that has, I mean, the EU is sort of generally quite slow in particular in area of core national sovereignty and com common foreign security policy is one of the trickiest and least integrated areas in Europe. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. It's been decades where they have known ever since the war in Yugoslavia, they've known they really have to have better capability in dealing with their own backyard and we're not very much further. And so this is not, this is something that there's such a deep seated resistance and such really fundamental divergences. But if anything, I think four years of Trump and also uh, this war, I think is bringing us closer to that. So in that sense, I think this has already been happening uh, because of, 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 of a very clear, you know, also at that point, there was even a sort of indication would Trump pull out of NATO, which would have meant, you know, the end of NATO. So it's not something we only have to speculate about. It is something we did, I think, live through um, the, the sort of lessening of a commitment to, to Europe as a continent and to the sort of liberal world order. I want to turn to a question um, by Kevin Ryan. Um, who writes in about uh, the Schengen border area. And that may seem like a little technical thing, but it really obviously is, is a huge uh, thing in, in European Union uh, politics. I just remember looking at for years when, when you looked at surveys and asked people kind of, what do you like about the EU? Oftentimes the first answer that came to mind was that people gave by, by far the most common answer was the ability to to work and travel in different countries, right? To live in different places in Europe. That's what a lot of people oftentimes think of as, what do I get out of the EU, so to speak? And I remember always being thought, thinking it was funny that I think the second most favorable thing was uh, free roaming uh, across the member states. Um, but if we leave free roaming to the side for now, um, um, Ryan, uh, sorry, Kevin Ryan asks, um, uh, what, in what way, if any, is the Schengen border area likely to be reformed? For instance, the French have put forward reform proposals. Um, do, do you see that happening? And, and then putting it back to the 
panel's theme kind of does it matter uh, for how people conceive of Europe? I know there are going to be tricky questions. I mean, I guess we, we saw very clearly in, uh, you know, both with COVID and the migration crisis that when there are these external shocks, even though in negotiations, uh, you know, with, with the UK, there was always, oh, it's very clear, this is like fundamental to the EU. But when you get these external shocks, member states have certainly proven that they were quite willing to, at least in the short term, to, you know, put back up the borders. So it's not as sort of clear cut that uh, these things will uh, be. But again, in the response we've currently seen to the Ukraine uh, refugee crisis, there's been a quite uniform response on something again, going back to this issue of what are the sort of core issues where the EU has traditionally struggled uh, to integrate. And those are in these areas of high politics. We, we talked about common foreign security policy, but the other ones are to do with, with migration and refugee. I mean, Lauren is much more of an expert on that, but it's really been hard uh, for um, the EU to deal with that. So the fact they have had such a common response this time around on visas and so on, I find quite remarkable. Going back to something uh, that um, Elizabeth said earlier, yes, the, so the migration crisis, for instance, was really controversial and almost brought the union not to the brink of collapse, but certainly created a lot of difficult moments. Um, but isn't that, I mean, isn't that a, a good thing? Don't we want these conflicts to be worked out in a way? Don't we want, uh, you know, you can't have sort of apple pie every day, all day long. Um, so having these moments of crisis and having to make really tough decisions uh, for so building the a, a European Union um, or continuing to build a European Union, don't you need those conflicts uh, to arise and for people to to bargain over them and, and to come to new settlements as we go along? Isn't that the nature of building something meaningful? Um, yes, we can sort of see, hey, you know, when there's an external threat, an external enemy that we band together and sort of, we, so that's easy in the first five minutes at least. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, um, I'm more sanguine about these, these crises. That's what I meant earlier about kind of, aren't they a gift in a way? Uh, because by having to work out some of these problems, you come to a, to a uh, not to a better place, but a more settled place. Uh, about Europe. Um, but um, I don't know, uh, that, that's neither here nor there at, at this time. Um, let me ask another do you question. Want me to, do you want me to? Yeah, to I'd, love to, I'd love to hear your view um, on that. With hindsight, you are right. I'm just thinking back in, in the middle of the Euro crisis or the financial crisis or the middle of the migration crisis mm -hmm. when the tensions were so great that, you know, the the European Union could have just rolled back in a significant way, right? If not break apart, that is perhaps a little bit more to, but I, I remember distinctly in 2011, I think it was, um, so in the middle of the, of the financial crisis, and I just was sitting in, in a room, God knows how I got there anyhow, there was mostly bankers around, and they were discussing um, the, including from the European Central Bank, but also um, some other national banks, and they were discussing the future of the Euro. And I came out of that meeting and okay, there's many people listening, but I'll say it anyway. I went on the plane and I cried. 
because I realized that the European Union was in such a crisis that these people um, did not see a way out um, and, and thought that the European Union could simply break on this. Mm. Um, so yes, with hindsight, and I've heard that say that one, as one major impetus for Angela Merkel to be so quick and fast for once on COVID was, because of her dilly-dallying, I'm sorry to say, on, on the financial crisis. And with the help to push of Macron, and I think an effective Ursula von der Leyen, apparently, um, they, they decided that they would not make the same mistake and be fast. Because remember, the first reaction was essentially to let Italy fend for itself, right? So yes, crises are, inevitable events, events, my dear boy, events, that's what politics is about anyway, and crises are just very big events. But they can also, they are moments of choice. And, you know, as it happens, as we can see now, the European Union has come stronger out of each of these crises, but that couldn't have been predicted. Crises can break as well as make. So instead, I think that's a very good point. Um, uh, so instead of using hindsight, now let's use foresight. Um, so if I, I was looking at uh, Sarah's graph from earlier, since 2016, support for membership in the EU has been going up, and that could be uh, a number of different things, including Trump, for instance, right? Including uh, the pandemic and what have you. Um, so fast forward to a year from now, will, will, and will that graph continue to sort of go up? But what would be your prediction and why would it be the prediction that you make? What's going to happen? How would you sort of assess that analytically? How would you think about that question, right? Kind of what, it kind of is a question about what do you think are the drivers, right? What is underlying these, these trends? Um, so if, if we had to have a bet here right now um, over whether support for the European Union and membership in it is going to stay at a high level or is going to decline or continue to go up? What, do you, what would you say? I mean, the one thing to think of when we look at the long term, so again, I think we have a very good understanding in the literature of trying to understand cross-national variation in EU support. I mean, that's where we're on quite firm ground. We can predict pretty well what sort of individuals are more supportive and less supportive. I think I already sort of try to make an argument for why I think this crisis might uh, you know, kind of kind of boost to EU support, but also the kind of effective support that, that Lauren, which is talked about, which is more stable that people just identify. So identification with Europe, primary identification with Europe has been quite low traditionally. And that so that might shift some of these underlying things. If we just look at high level support in the EU or so, that's also correlated with other things like the economy. So when people, for example, are very poor, going through a recession, unemployed, they're just generally more unhappy with their political institutions at all levels of governance. So I think if we do get into a period with a, uh, we, as we like to call it in the UK, sort of crisis, you know, living a, what is it we call it? You know, where people can't pay the bills and uh, gas prices are going up and so on. You know, then we might, that will, it, that will affect 
uh, I think generally just apathy with political institutions. So therefore, I'm so not sort of gung ho. We're going to go up to 100%, you know, because of a war. Because people just generally feel more dissatisfied uh, uh, with with politics and political institutions when they're going through a really hard time. And unfortunately, the sort of combination of 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 coming out of the COVID pandemic and now this war. Um, and also some of the costs that EU, I think, rightly imposing on itself in terms of the sanctions are going to be costly for people's lives. And that will also make them, I think, probably more disillusioned about politics in general. And that's generally what we see with these sort of long-term cyclical trends. Doesn't mean it's the end of the EU, but therefore I won't predict that it keeps going up um, uh, the way, even though I think the Ukraine the, the war in Ukraine is, is, is generally something that would bring Europe closer together. So there are these contending dynamics is really what you're saying. There's that unifying element and then there is the, the, the real daily cost that people will have to bear if this continues um, uh, to go on. Uh, I, I want to hear the other predictions. Mine would be um, limited change. Um, because of the, these cross pressures, um, I, I, my prediction would be uh, you know, no more than uh, about two and a half percent in either direction on, on the trend line. Um, I, I wouldn't expect to see dramatic fluctuations uh, um, because of these cross pressures. Uh-huh. Lisbeth, do you have a view? Um, Oh, prediction is always difficult, especially of the future, of course, but, you know, I, I am with um, Sarah and Lauren on this. I'm sorry to say that we probably are sort of in the same, on the same line. I do see um, bigger conflicts on the horizon, Sarah has mentioned on several, and the other one I see is China, which I think how to treat China in the future. Um, as China was a huge commercial partner of several European countries, but is a particularly to the extent that it aligns itself, continues to align itself with Russia, is a threat to some of the values that, that Europe claims to stand for, the core values. Then I think, how are you going to deal that? So we are entering a phase, I think, where we are unwinding the globalization as we knew it and where the uh, world is falling, breaking up in larger blocks. One of them will be around the EU and whether or not the US will be part of it will depend on who wins in 2024. Um, but for now, I would say that would be the EU writ large, probably also the US, the democratic bloc. And that's where globalization writ smaller will probably, probably continue to exist and perhaps even intensify to reap whatever economies of scale can be reaped. But still, the, the cost of unwinding that globalization will be enormous. Um, of, and, and the question is to what extent and how fast that unwinding will also affect China, which is now Europe's biggest trading partner. Right. And, yeah, and that relates to your question about public opinion, because I think Sarah is absolutely right. You know, for the vast majority of the people, it's, it's the economy. Uh, and I'm saying this as someone who is known as an identity scholar, but it's the economy, stupid, that, that is um, an important influence on 
on how they feel about their political institutions and their political leaders. And I think we're in for some pretty rough times, but how rough will depend on some of these elements that we've put on the table. Hmm. Interesting. So if I can go back to this idea of, of transnational cleavage and perhaps a new cleavage around, cos uh, cleavage around cosmopolitanism, for instance, um, I haven't looked at the data in recent years, but it used to be the case that people who liked, say, European integration also tended to like uh, international institutions generally. Yeah. They, they tended to pr prefer international cooperation. They were supportive of the United Nations, yeah. and other sort of global bodies as well. Um, so I wonder um, uh, if sort of to play it out in my own mind, if, if, you, if you're right that the world is breaking up into a kind of a uh, bipolar, tripolar world uh, between, say, China and Europe and the US, or China on one hand and Europe and the US on the other hand, and we don't know exactly where Russia is going to end up in this scenario. Um, or oh, India uh, for that matter. Yes, exactly. Um, then, kind of, how does that affect this? Uh, this this cleavage, this uh, the continuation and the, the development of that cleavage. Um, when I look around the LSE in, in the European Institute, we have a lot of students who uh, come from uh, all over continental Europe, North America, East Asia, and so on. And if, you, if I look at that class of individuals, uh, some of which I think are listening here, uh, because I told my yeah. class that they should come and listen today. Um, these are people who live beyond borders. Yeah. These are people who think beyond borders. They have the, have the capabilities, language, and otherwise to do that. Um, what is this change going to do to them? The winners are going to be in a more uncertain situation. I put it um, very cautiously. Um, so I, I do think there will be a significant scale back on transnationalism until Maybe six months ago, I would have said that the scale back will certainly be there in terms of people, movement of people. Um, and COVID was a dry run for this, if you like. Uh, I'm sitting here in Florence that heavily depends on tourism, on international tourism. The American tourists are partially back. The Chinese tourists are not expected to be back for the next two to three years. Um, and in the current situation, that may not even ever be. Um, uh, so geopolitics overrides that. So I thought it was going to be primarily a constraint on, on movement of people, um, but a continued engagement in, in movement of products um, because of the deep in mutual interdependencies. Right now, I don't even see that anymore. What that means for your students and my students specifically is that it's, it's going to be very difficult to navigate a, a fragmenting world. And so people will have to make choices. Um, and choice, the other thing- Choices around what? Choice of what their main base will be and their hands may be forced because to the extent that the blocks become actively hostile, then I think uh, one of the key elements that will happen is that, um, uh, individuals will be forced to choose or otherwise leave um, um, 
the block that that uh, that you know leave the block that they like least. The the thing I also wanted to say is in this new world, democracies are a minority project. They are a minority. The majority of the world is authoritarian or authoritarian inclined. Authoritarianism is on the rise. So in contrast to the liberal world order, so-called liberal world order that we're leaving, the, um, the, 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 the kind of project or the projection of democracy and rule of law um, as we know it will be a minority project. And, and if it survives, it will survive in the smaller kind of Western, call it Western, I would say the democratic bloc. It may or may not include India, so it may not be that small. Um, that I think India is sitting on the fence on this, and it will probably include countries like Japan, South Korea, and, and the Antipodes. So it's not just Europe, it's not just the old West, the transatlantic West, but it is um, you know, a democratic bloc that will be geographically somewhat fragmented. But um, those are things that can be overcome with the, with the, with the tools that we have. Uh, that the information technology has put at, at, at our disposal. Sorry, I had trouble unmuting myself here. Um, these are big, big, big questions, right? These are big transformations. These are big sort of global um, challenges, obviously, that will reverberate into every one of our lives um, as, as we go forward over the next 30 years of the European Institute's existence. Um, there, was a, there was a quick question here, and I think we're, we're going to get close to the end of this, um, uh, from uh, Karen Ashike, I hope I pronounced your name right. And, and she's asking, based on trends of youth supporting integration, but the difficult, difficulty governments have in making change in immigration policy for those outside the EU, do you ever envision an international body to control immigration based on expressed needs of nations for labor, land use, and other survival measures. Would they, um, I, I presume, countries accept an international body guided by national health, age, labor, and worker needs? Um, to, to make accept, would, would this body be accepted to make these decisions for immigration into EU nations? Would this be an all-encompassing body to decide who comes and goes into EU states? Wow, that is a, um, an interesting suggestion. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a deep cynic, so my answer is going to be no, but I'm not on the panel, so I was going to ask uh, Lauren, who's thought a lot more about migration and immigration than I have. Um, unfortunately, not in my lifetime. I don't uh, imagine that the, this would happen um i think uh, you know if if you think back to it, some of the the big movements uh in european integration and increases in european integration you know single european act and economic monetary union these kinds of things um you know at least what liberal government intergovernmentalists would argue i think is that you know this requires a big uh, confluence of um, ideologies or beliefs about, you know, how, how the EU should look, or, or in that in those cases, you know, how a European economy should work. 
And if you if you apply that to the situation, you know, you might imagine this would require a confluence of prime ministers uh, and chancellors who all believe that such an international organization um, should exist and that it should be allowed to make these bigger decisions about where populations can go based on the, the needs of that particular country. So um, Chris, you're good at probability um, and calculating these kinds of things. You, you tell us what's the likelihood um, that we will have a situation where Hungary is not run by Orban or someone like him, where Poland is not run by far right, um, where Italy doesn't have the far, far right involved, Austria, and so on, and, and so on. So unfortunately, not in my, my lifetime is the short answer. I think the combined probabilities of that are quite low. Um, so I'm going to ask one last question, and then I think we're going to wrap it up. And that has to do with the Ukraine, uh, so with the Ukrainian application, the Ukrainian application for membership in the European Union, um, which obviously has been in the news. Um, and so, so my question isn't so much, are they going to become members when and all that kind of good stuff, but um, how do we, how do Europeans think about who belongs, right? Who, who, who gets to be included in our, in our club, in our cultural, political, economic sphere and, and becomes part of the in-group, so to speak, of Europeans. Um, how do you think public opinion in Europe will, will think about this? Will it change in the wake of the, of the war in Ukraine? If you think about kind of Georgia, Moldova, think about kind of a, a part of Europe that hasn't been front and center in, in so many ways. Um, so do you, do you have thoughts about this? Has this been something you, you've been thinking about? I'm always thinking when we think about identity, we think about people who are in the, in the group and people who aren't in the group. Um, so who belongs? And how do Europeans think about that? Again, I think it's probably more in, in Lauren's camp, but let me just start it off quickly. Um, first by noting that it, it's the, the definition or I would say the subjective kind of feel of who belongs or doesn't belong has, has proven to be quite malleable. If you were to go back 30 years ago, I think, or 40 years ago, who would have thought that Romania or Serbia or, you know, would be potential candidates and then real members in the case of Romania and plausible candidates in the case of Serbia, right? That, that's just going straight to the to the current um, external boundaries of, of the European Union. So that is one. The other thing is, of course, identity or identification is, is, is important uh, for the longevity, I think, of the, of the polity as a whole, certainly as it deepens. But there is also the other practical things. You know, you're talking about countries like Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine, and the, the chief reason for, or a sufficient reason for why the Ukraine has not yet been accepted as an applicant of the European Union is that it simply is, doesn't have the institutions um, to, to meet the minimum criteria, right? Um, 
Now, there may be a political exception now that this is geopolitics is coming in, but it won't be on the force of merit in that sense. And I think um, that you're just violating that too far is, is also going to put strains on, on the polity. So it's, it's a tough thing for leaders um, to kind of navigate is the emotional identity, identity elements that are more, perhaps more shiftable than we would have imagined. Um, and, and why would they not shift further um, in a changing reality? But then there is the practicality, the reality of, of, of institutions, of, 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 of resources that need to be taken into account. Lauren, what do you think? Um, to be honest, it's not something I have thought about uh, in a very long time. As I said um, at the start of my remarks, it's not really, um, you know, attitudes towards European Union, attitudes towards enlargement. I have worked on that topic uh, in the context of Turkey, but um, it, it's not something that I've thought about in a, a very long time. Um, and I, I suspect um, you know, if I to were to have a quick look at survey data on, on this, where there is a don't know option, um, you know, before what, what's been happening recently, um, I suspect that for a lot of countries, people in a, in a lot of the current EU member states wouldn't really know whether um, Georgia should be a member or Ukraine should be a, a member and, and so on. Um, they would ha probably have stronger views about whether Turkey should be a member, um, and that would be um, uh, connected to the fact that the vast majority of Turks are Muslim. Um, in, in my view, that, that would be a strong factor in why people are likely to have a stronger reaction to, to Turkey. Um, but for, for the other countries, um, again, putting aside the, what's happening in, in Ukraine now, I, I don't imagine that in many countries there are strong opinions, but maybe you know in countries where there has been a, a stronger historical connection, there there would be um, stronger views on whether Ukraine should be a member or or not. And I think um, you know uh, Lisbeth's point about uh, ma malleability um, and. You know, the, the potential role of elites in helping people to decide who, who belongs, you know, when, when we're talking about countries that they may not know that much about, uh, I think that um, the political elites may play a role, um, a strong role in this. Excellent. Thank you very much for your thought. I know some of this was out of, outside of your wheelhouse, but I, I really, really appreciate everyone's willingness to to give it a go. Um, I, I think it's come time to, to conclude the event. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to, for both me, I think everyone here to listen to the speakers today. I want to thank everyone who participated, uh, Professor Hoger, Professor Hobalt, and Professor McLaren. Um, I certainly learned a lot. I really, really appreciated their time and I appreciate everyone else's time for participating today. And I uh, hope to see you at another event, uh, hopefully soon. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.